Welcome, everybody, to This Podcast Has Autism. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. My name is Marcy, and I'm one of the hosts for the show. I'm with my husband, Bran. Today, we are going to talk about tuberosclerosis complex and autism spectrum disorders. Tuberosclerosis complex is also known as TSC. What is the link between autism spectrum disorder and tuberosclerosis? tuberous sclerosis complex. Over the years, it has become recognized that between one-fourth and one-half of all children with TSC develop ASD. The rate of ASD in the general population is substantially lower, around 1% of the total population, so there is clearly a very substantial increase in the rate of ASD in children with TSC. Although this is relatively low rate, it is still clearly much higher than the rate of TSC in the general population, which is somewhere between 1 in 6,000 individuals. Either way, the overlap between ASD and TSC is clear. Additionally, there is a very clear link between ASD and cognitive impairment in TSC. ASD is usually diagnosed in young children between the ages of 2 and 4, but in individuals with TSC, the diagnosis of ASD may go unrecognized or be delayed due to other developmental disabilities. The purpose of an adequate diagnosis of ASD for individuals with TSC is so that the individual can receive appropriate education services and lifelong support as needed. Why do individuals with TSC frequently develop ASD? Current research does not definitely answer the questions related to the increase of ASD in individuals with TSC. However, some important leads are beginning to form the basis of an explanation for the link. In general, it is believed the abnormalities in the brain development that occur in TSC sometimes interfere with the proper development of brain areas that are important for development of social communication skills, the ability to appropriately interact with other individuals. Early evidence suggested that cortical tubers, which develop in earlier stages of brain development, particularly in the temporal lobes, were associated with the development of ASD. The temporal lobes are important for processing auditory information, especially speech sounds, as well as information about faces and facial expressions. Interference with the development of these key skills may then lead to the social communication difficulties that characterize ASD. However, it is, not, it is now clear that the presence of cortical tubers is not sufficient on its own to produce ASD. Instead, it appears that there are abnormalities in the way different parts of the brain connect to each other, not only in the temporal lobes, but in many other parts of the brain as well. These abnormal connections, which occur independent of tumors, tubers, are associated with ASD in children and adults with TSC. Additionally, many studies have shown that seizures, and particularly early onset of seizures, are associated with de delayed development and ASD. Therefore, it is likely a combination of factors that leads to the much higher chance of ASD. Although the link with early onset epilepsy and infantile spasms raises the pos possibility that the seizures may play a role in interfering with normal development of brain systems 
important in social communication, it is possible that the link with early seizures instead reflects the presence of abnormalities in key locations in the brain. These abnormalities and con connectivity may give rise to both the seizures as well as ASD. Further research to try to determine which of these two explanations is correct is required, especially as it has such important implications for treatment. Is it important to diagnose ASD in individuals with TSC? Some people express the view that it is enough that an individual has TSC, so another diagnosis such as ASD is unnecessary. Although it makes sense to avoid adding diagnosis and labels, the diagnosis of ASD is important for several reasons. A diagnosis can often help parents make sense of a range of rather unusual behaviors that otherwise seems extremely puzzle, puzzling. Often parents feel that somehow they have been doing something wrong in how they are parenting their child and that the difficulties that the child is having in relating to others, communicating, or playing is somehow the parent's fault. It could be quite helpful for parents to discover that some of the unusual behaviors their child may be de demonstrating are part of the developmental delays a child may be experiencing related to the autistic process. In addition, the diagnosis is important because children with ASD benefit from early intervention services that support improvement in speech, language, and behaviors. Early intervention services are available for very young children and their families. These services include physical therapy, speech therapy, and occupational therapy. Early intervention services work with not only the child with ASD, but also the parents and siblings. The goal of early services is to foster the development of children with ASD. How is the diagnosis made? The diagnosis of an ASD is based on the report of the child's early development, detailing the way in which he or she acquired skills and the areas in which he or she has struggled, coupled with careful observations and assessments. These evaluations need to be performed by individuals who are experienced in evaluating individuals with complex developmental disabilities and ASD. The assessments are lengthy, and it may be necessary for the evaluator to see the child at home or in the playgroup or nursery setting, often referred to as a functional contextual assessment, before the diagnosis can be confirmed. The diagnosis of ASD is made through a team evaluation, including reports from therapists, pediatricians, teachers, parents, and psychologists. There are several assessments that are used to reach a diagnosis of ASD in addition to the clinical gold standard, which is DSM-5, the most commonly used play-based measure is called the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, ADOS. This assessment should be performed by someone familiar with ASD who is trained to utilize the ADOS. When is diagnosis possible? 
To some extent, the answer to this depends on the individual's overall level of ability. In individuals who have the most severe cognitive disabilities, it can sometimes be extremely difficult to make a definitive diagnosis. In general, it is hard to make a confident diagnosis before the age of 18 months to two years. Research is continuing to identify the early markers of ASD so early treatments can be implemented. What treatment is suggested? Treatment options vary based on the individual's age and ability. The focus of the treatment is often targeted at strengthening skills in individual areas of difficulty. Special education provisions and accommodations are incorporated in a child's individual education pl plan, an IEP. This often includes the individual working with a multi multidisciplinary team of clinical professionals that provide several different services, including speech and language therapists, developmental and child psychologists, and pediatricians. Because of the great variability in the impairments, level of functioning, and behaviors of children on the spectrum, there is no universal treatment for children with ASD. According to the National Academy of Sciences, Children with ASD should receive a minimum of 25 hours per week of educational services targeting their core deficits, with a specific education plan tailored to the needs of the child. There are many possible types of educational interventions for children with ASD. Some of these include Applied Behavioral Analysis, ABA, and Discrete Trial Training, DTT, Pivotal Response Treatment, PRT, Floor Time Therapy, Treatment of Autistic and Related Communication Handicapped Children, T-E-A-C-C-H. Picture Exchange Communication System, P-E-C-S. Options vary and the treatment program needs to be tailored to the individual's age and ability. Treatment is targeted at fostering skills in the three main areas of difficulty, social and communication skills and the development of imaginative play. In addition, treatment aims to ensure that the repetitive or obsessive behaviors do not become too marked or prominent and do not interfere with family life. Lastly, the treatment aims to help parents foster their child's development and support them during the early, often very demanding years. There is growing evidence to suggest that early intervention programs may be one of the most effective certain forms of treatment in individuals with AESD, but it is not known yet to what extent the intervention programs of this kind are helpful for children with TSC. Research is needed to evaluate effectiveness of these programs for individuals with TSC who have ASD. Current studies in the U.S. are exploring early interventions in in infants with TSC targeting behaviors that may predispose them to ASD. Additionally, there are now two medications that are approved by the FDA for treating irritability in ASD. These are Risperdone and, and Abilify. No medications have been approved for treating the core symptoms of ASD. What will the future hold? 
detailed knowledge about the way individuals with TSC and ASD develop is currently being gained through studies in the US and the UK. So for now we can only be guided by the development of individuals with ASD who do not have TSC. The range of outcomes here is very great. At one extreme individuals can have persisting serious problems throughout childhood and into adult life. Some individuals with ASD are prone to self-injury particularly if they get upset or frustrated when their routines or activities are interrupted or if they get frustrated over their communication difficulties. At the other extreme, individuals with high-functioning ASD can largely outgrow their difficulties and lead an independent or semi-independent life in adulthood. The outcome is to some extent related to the severity of the associated cognitive impairments or a demonstrated level of cognitive disabilities. Individuals who have severe or profound forms of cognitive ability are likely to have persisting difficulties. In addition, the amount of useful speech that the individual acquires indicates how they will fare in the future. Lastly, the severity of the social and communication difficulties and behavior problems is also helpful in determining what the outcome will be. The more severe the problems, the more persistent they tend to be. And this was all found at tsalliance.org. Now let's hear the interview. Hey everybody, today we have Jenna Vickers and I'm going to let her um, introduce herself. Alright, so yeah, my name is Jenna Vickers. I am a journalism student at the University of Minnesota. Um, I am 21 years old and I have autism. <laughs> uh, so what was your life like before you got diagnosed with autism? Oh god, it was... It was basically this big feeling of, of being lost. Like, all the way up through my elementary and middle school years, even high school, I was kind of the invisible kid everywhere. I I kind of was that way because I was so good in academics, so none of my parents or, like, my teachers picked up on any of my symptoms. Uh, I was really good at masking, but it was just this overarching feeling of something being wrong. You know, like, everyone else had this instruction manual to life and kind of just knew how to do things. And for me, it was like I had to go in and learn things does that make any sense yeah it makes total sense yeah okay yeah and when i kind of when i got to be 19 it got to be too much so that was when i went to a therapist uh in yeah in minnesota and i was diagnosed yeah i, I just recently got diagnosed with autism myself oh and, really and it just answered up a lot of questions about me growing up and it, it, I, I've been enjoying life so much more now that I've been diagnosed because, you know, it solves so many problems that I that I have. <laughs> I know. I totally feel that, too. Like, I never knew why I was so just tired all the time. And, you know, being a college student, like, everyone, everyone was like, oh, yeah, haha, I'm so tired all the time. And for me, it's like I did my schoolwork and then I had my my helping with the farm at home. But. Other than that, it was like I didn't have a job, uh, like a retail job or anything like that. You know, I wasn't staying up till like 
one in the morning. I was in bed at 10 every night, and I just was so confused to why I was so tired. And then when I was diagnosed, it was like I was able to put kind of a label on that and understand, like, all the all the sensory stuff was really getting to me, like the commute and the fluorescent lights. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I know I know <laughs> what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, it's it, it was weird, and it it's just been kind of a journey to, to understand exactly what will trigger symptoms or anxiety in my case because I never had looked at my life through that lens before and I'm still kind of learning how to do that. So so what led you to get diagnosed? Oh, this is an interesting story. So I'm a, I'm an equestrian, right? I ride horses, I compete. Um, it was the fact that I, my trainer was trying to teach me how to do something and it was a, a, a physical motion. Like it was some sort of uh, maneuver on the ground with my body and even though she was like physically positioning my body in the way it should have been I just I couldn't do it I, it, it something wasn't clicking and this went on for like an hour and so my trainer actually talked to my mother at the end of this and was like you're we've been at this point we've been talking about getting me diagnosed for a long time and my trainer said you are doing her no favors by not taking her in you need to go get her go get her looked at and so we did and that was that <laughs> oh wow yeah uh, before that, when we started thinking about getting a diagnosis for me, just because uh, even with counseling, my social anxiety wasn't getting better. Like, it felt like even though I was always talking to people and trying to work on that aspect of myself, I never could get better at just being genuine. Like, it always seemed like I had to kind of mask and figure, kind of calculate how I was supposed to act in, a, in the situation. And I didn't want to do that. But I felt that if I didn't, it I wouldn't even know begin to know where to act. So it was always just calculation. So after after you were diagnosed, how did how did you feel? Um, do you want like at the time, like after as I was coming out of that therapy appointment, or just kind of in general? Um, both if you want. Okay, so after I got out of that therapy appointment, I cried. I was sitting there at the light rail station, you know, waiting for my train, and I was sobbing. And it wasn't even happy tears, because I felt like the diagnosis was like a death sentence. Like, I had this really bad stereotype in my head about people with autism, and about how we could never be happy, or we could never do awesome things, like, you know, go to school and, you know, be successful, or whatever my definition of success was at the time. Um, so that was around, like, a week-long it was a really weird, weird time because half of me was like, oh yeah, you know, this is great. I can kind of understand. I know what, I know I can, I don't even know where I'm going. I know what, uh, why certain things happen to me now or I feel certain ways. But then the other half is like, this is the, this is the death sentence. I'll never be happy. And obviously that's wrong, but it was this really bad idea I had in my head at the time. I, I totally get you. When I got really? di when I got diagnosed, I was I got really depressed, and I mm -hmm. even told my wife, you know, you're more than welcome to leave me, you know, because really? I'm not good enough for you. Wow. <laughs> and so, so I, yeah. Yeah, I know where you're coming from. I just I didn't know it was a universal thing. So I've never I've never actually talked to someone else about their diagnosis story. Like I've talked to other people with autism, but I haven't. You know, I did. I've never understood that. I mean, not understood, but I haven't heard from that. You know, that perspective. 
did, did some things in your life make more sense once you knew? Um, of course, everything. Like, I understood why I was so nervous on the train. It was because of the fluorescent lights. And so I got sunglasses and it got a lot better. Um, kind of, yeah, my need to be alone so much. My, my, and my random outbursts, not of, not of anger, but when I get overstimulated, I do tend to kind of, you know, lash out. And I thought I couldn't, I could never understand that because I thought it was coming from my depression. And I'm like, I'm working on this and I'm not depressed anymore, yet I'm still, I'm still doing this. So symptoms that I thought were coming from other mental illnesses were actually coming from the way my brain was hardwired and the way I, the way I was, not because something was wrong with me. Yeah, I, 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 I totally get where you're coming from. Really? Yep. Oh, yeah, when, it's... Yeah, when I got diagnosed, um, I, I just looked back on my life and, and it was like, yeah, that's because of the autism. That's why I do this. That totally makes yeah, sense no. now. Yeah, like my, my poor hand-eye coordination and why I struggled for so long to get my driver's license. Like, I was licensed until I was 20. And it wasn't because I wasn't practicing. It was because I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I was so scared. I would get overwhelmed. I'd start crying in the driver's seat. And it's like I couldn't manage to figure out a way to drive that worked for me until I was 20. And it's like that's, you know, it's not because something is wrong with you. It's just because of the way your brain is hardwired. You know, you're different. Different is not bad. Yeah. Different is just different. It's not good. It's not. Yeah. It's Well, it is good. I don't know. Uh, how does autism affect your schooling and your overall life? Um, from the schooling perspective, I definitely have been always been one of those students that needs to kind of talk to the professor all the time. And after I was diagnosed with autism, I realized that was it was because of the way my, my brain worked that I always needed to be talking to the professors to kind of, I don't know, uh, I would think it would be because to clarify instructions and to kind of, because they, they talk to the class, like a, a class of neurotypical people. And it's, it's like interpreting a different language for me. So I always will need to kind of go up to the professor after class and be like, Hey, okay, this, I, if I have this clear, you want this, this, this done in my next week. And just, just clarify that. Um, I've also had a lot of professors that are really, really accommodating, even though I, wasn't like officially registered with the uh, disability resources uh, on campus because they want you to register if you want accommodations. But I've had professors that, even on my word, they'll um, just give me extra time for tests, which I definitely need, especially when it comes to my Spanish minor. And yeah, I've basically it's kind of having to step back and understand, especially in college, that I'm not going to follow the traditional path whatever that may be i'm not going to be out partying you know five days a week i'm not going to be out socializing with friends it's like my path looks different than everybody else's and that's okay <laughs> uh, what kind of journalism do you write and what what kind of projects have you done okay so for, as far as journalism i have done many things last year i did with um, around nine other students, I did a project where we researched and reported for uh, the recovering uh, recovery community on campus, people who are recovering from drugs and alcohol addictions or whatever. And we had a whole big site for that. And it was, it was just amazing to be able to make that 
sort of changed because we held talks. We got we got stuff moving in the administration. It was it was wicked. And this is at the U of M. This isn't a small college. Um, let's see what else I've done. Kind of more uh, personal essays on my Odyssey Online account. I can post the link to that. Give you guys a link to that if you want. I am currently working on editing my first novel, which is published with Cosby Media Productions. Um, that's a hard thing to balance with school, but I'm getting there. Uh, I do. I'm working on a web comic. That's probably not going to go anywhere for a while. That's more of a of a. Uh, just a fun project for me and then I also do a bunch of other fiction writing projects with other people that I don't know where they're going but they'll go somewhere someday that's pretty awesome yeah thanks it's a lot of my hobbies and stuff I use as coping mechanisms for when like sensory stuff gets to be too much or when I, I can't I don't I'm out of spoons for the day you know I'm like I can't I can't do anything anymore so I'm just going to go right and it it feels like, uh, yeah, it's it's just really really a soothing thing for me writing. Well, that's 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 just awesome. Uh, yeah, <laughs> everybody you. needs to find their um, find something that helps them to soothe. Like I write music. That, uh -huh. That's what I do to kind of like soothe me. <laughs> yeah, it, even if it's. It's not soothing. It is soothing for me, but a lot of it is being able to kind of be mindful in the moment. Like that, with when I'm in daily life, especially with autism, I'm being pulled so many different directions. Because I've got sensory stuff coming at me. I've got like 500 assignments going on. I've got, you know, my mother wants this or that for me. And it's, it's something where it's like, it's almost a hyper-focused thing where you sit there, for writing is for me, you sit there and just right and that's all you do and it's like everything else fades away you know yeah yeah so it's writing's always been really important to me for that reason um is there anything else you'd like to to add or share before we wrap things up uh yeah i guess i can talk a little bit about uh if you're heading into college with autism what is it going to be like what you know what i mean how to yeah. cope with increasing sensory stuff so as, as I already said, I go to the University of Minnesota. Um, it's a big, big college in the middle of a big, big city, and it was a huge culture shock for me, coming from uh, suburban, rural Minnesota and going to this huge, really liberal uh, city and expecting expected to be an adult, expect, expected to kind of run my own life. And with, without the structure of high school, if you're going, if you're going into college, it's, it's going to be really jarring. Because with high school, they, they structure your day, right? You go in, and it, it's 8 o'clock, and then an hour later, somebody says, okay, time to leave, and then you, you go you go to your next class. But in college, you pick your own structure. You're you're in charge of your own, your own life. When you do homework, when you do your classes, when you, yeah, when you do everything. And it's a big, big mind game with autism to learn how to structure your structure your life instead of having someone else structure it for you so that's one thing <laughs> and then I guess another thing with uh, professors big time is just talk to them just go up and talk to them uh, you know you, you don't have to even be honest you don't have to even talk about your diagnosis if you just go up and talk to them and say you know hey I'm so-and-so just let them put uh, a face to the name especially in really huge lectures and if you happen to need help down the line with a certain subject, like, 
your brain just doesn't work a certain way or you need to go to office hours if they know who you are they're going to be a lot more willing to help you if help you with things versus if you just kind of showed up at the end of the semester because you were struggling with with so and so and that goes for all college students but i think that goes a lot for uh autistic college students because of the of the whole you know we need to learn to structure our lives in addition to this new the new academic demands you know it 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 gets hard yeah yeah and then what else sensory stuff I guess it depends on what kind of college you go to but uh, a lot of it is just kind of learning to use your coping mechanisms and not be afraid to do so like I wear my sunglasses to every single class and I just did that this year and you know some people are like why are you wearing sunglasses and it's like all I gotta say is the fluorescent lights get to me that's it I don't owe them any explanation of why I'm doing this thing it's just it's just something that helps me. And they, I do have people who are honestly, like, curious about, or they'll, they'll know I'm autistic, and they'll be like, hey, you know, why do you wear dark glasses? And, you know, you can you can explain it to them. College is, I feel you have a lot more freedom to kind of express yourself and be who you are, because you're not in a fishbowl anymore, versus in high school you kind of are. And for someone with autism, this can be really liberating in that sense like you can finally kind of come to terms with who you are and what you need as a person with autism does that does that make sense or am i just kind of rambling <laughs> no no you're like fine what you're fine you're making sense <laughs> okay yeah no it's it's a huge a huge jump for for anyone i mean you're you're transitioning from this life of structure to this life of you know congratulations it's your own your own path now and that's really scary but it's also really freeing because you're, you're free to kind of be who you are and do what you need to do to live your best life regardless if you have autism or not so um, yeah i guess that would be it i'm trying to think of other things that uh people could use to help cope at college, but I'm kind of, yeah, I think that might, might be about it. A lot of problems can be solved by just open communication with people. Yeah, and then uh, also there's uh, disability resources that you can get signed up for. Oh, yes, for sure. Like, if you go up to a professor with a, what my school does is they write a letter. They, they you, have a, you have an appointment with someone, and then they go up, and they write this letter about all the accommodations you need. And if you hand that to a professor, they are required to to give you these accommodations and that for a lot of people I for a lot of people it's really helpful I've been okay with just talking to my professors and you know getting help that way but for many people there if you need extra help or you want the security of a letter or the official backing behind you then yeah definitely look into what resources your college has available I had one college professor. He didn't take my accommodations very seriously. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. So I, I dropped the class, and then I also reported him. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. Because that's a big that. no-no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big no-no. Like, they will – I don't even know what they'll do, but I just – because I've never run into that issue. All my professors have been really, really just accommodating and, like, okay, you need extra time? Here. Oh, also another thing. Uh, act like you 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 give uh, you give. 
I thought you care in class. Like, obviously, you care to be there about your learning, but if you're engaged and you're, and the professor sees you're working very hard at whatever it is that they're, they're giving you, they're going to be a lot more willing to help you. And that sounds manipulative, but if honestly, it's, it's kind of not, because if you care about what you're learning, other people should, that your professor should care to help you, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So that's another thing that really helped barely helped with getting my professors to help me and take me seriously. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a big learning curve. Colleges, but if you're if you're smart and you can use your resources, you you got it. <laughs> yeah. You got this. You got this, and I think yeah, that's it. <laughs> All right. Well, well, I appreciate you sharing your. Uh, thoughts and wisdom with us and <laughs> thank you i appreciate being on here yeah now for some announcements i'd like to give a shout out to the following people for their love and support of the podcast ed becca and sensory goods we'd also like to announce the winner of the dapple giveaway we didn't get much participation with the questions so we selected a winner the old way by likes retweets shares or comments on the post the winner is Sarah Weber on Instagram. Congratulations! Next week, we will hear from Stephen Gaber, an autistic travel blogger. That's it for this episode. Until next time.